0: Hey, this is Kevin Bossenmeyer with UCI Conversations, and my guest today is an expert in art history and Disneyland, a unique combination. We'll get back to that in a moment. He earned his PhD from Yale University in 2014, and I will let him elaborate on his specialties. Please give a warm cyber welcome to Associate Professor Roland Bettencourt. How are you today, Professor?
1: Doing well. How are you?
0: Very good. Thank you. Please tell us all about your expertise, and we'll go from there.
1: Sure, so I am an art historian who focuses on the Middle Ages, in particular the Byzantine Empire, which is essentially the eastern portion of the Roman Empire in the medieval period. So a Christian empire that rules a great part of the Mediterranean on and off throughout the period of roughly the 4th century through the 15th century.
0: Why split the eastern section?
1: Yeah. So essentially, the Roman Empire becomes divided basically for administration purposes into a western half and an eastern half. And the eastern half based in Constantinople, uh, modern day Istanbul, is really the capital of what we later will term the Byzantine Empire, though the Byzantines themselves never refer to themselves as such they were Romans in their own eyes. They spoke Latin and Greek, later on primarily Greek for their entire history. And so they were really the connections between the ancient
0: world and the modern world in very palpable ways. What's unique about the eastern section of the Roman Empire? Well, one of the most unique things is
1: that, of course, they were native speakers of Greek. And therefore, that means that They had the access to all the learning of antiquity, which is to say that if you've ever read Plato or Aristotle, you've probably read it. You are able to read that text because a Byzantine scribe or philosopher had those books preserved from the ancient world. And those later would be translated into Latin and eventually into modern languages.
0: And what was happening on the Western
1: In the Western portion of the empire, you eventually have a sort of fracturing of power into different groups and really the eventual rise over the course of the Middle Ages of the modern states as we know them of, you know, we can roughly divide, you know, what we know as Germany, France, et cetera. Mainly linguistic divides begin to
0: happen and all that. How did you become interested in this time period, Professor?
1: Well, I knew I wanted to be an art historian from early on. And I. How did you know that? I should probably clarify that early on was really in high school, moving into early college. At some points, I wanted to be a theoretical physicist, but you know that that <laughs> didn't really quite happen. <laughs> and I took AP art history my sophomore year of high school, and I really enjoyed it. And it was something that came very naturally to me. And. Recognizing my strengths, I decided to pursue that. So I was an art history major from day one of undergrad. Do you you remember,
0: like, specifically, like, you know, what was it that grabbed you initially?
1: Yeah, my mom was always very much like, you know, art history is a good thing to talk to people about. It's important to know about culture, it's essentially like a foundational thing that everyone should know you know, an understanding of art and music and the history. And so that was very much instilled in me from a very, very early age before I could even speak as the stories go. My aunt famously asked my mom, how could you be surprised that he's an art historian when you were lecturing about the Mona Lisa when he was still a toddler? So that's where it all begins, essentially. Where did you grow up? Miami, Florida. Oh, okay. Yeah. And my family's Cuban, so that's a part of that background. Mm-hmm. So the art history interest begins very early on, becomes more of a serious interest at the end of high school. And I knew I wanted to be an art historian, but I wasn't sure what period to study. I think, like many students, we all gravitate toward the modern era in some capacity. And I began to realize that I could ask the same questions I was interested in modernity. of the Middle Ages. And in particular, I knew that the things that interested me the most about the modern world was really contemporary popular culture, and that I was really not going to be able to feasibly study that in an art history department, even though I really enjoyed the methods, the way of looking that art history instills and teaches you how to do. So I decided to work on the Middle Ages, because essentially, in my mind, they were the same type of questions, the same types of investigations and ways of thinking about visual culture.
0: So you decided to major in that field. Mm -hmm. How did you pick the schools to go to?
1: Um, So I began at the University of Miami and then eventually transferred halfway through to the University of Pennsylvania where I finished my undergrad. And a lot of it was just, you know, I think like many high school students. You have some stereotypical places you want to go to. It either works out or it doesn't. And then you suddenly find yourself on different journeys that change every year. Uh-huh. And I also did summer school at Columbia in New York and interned at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So I was really as active as I possibly could be. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I have really had a break since I was <laughs> probably a senior in high school.
0: <laughs> and then you ended up at Yale?
1: Correct, for my PhD and my master's before that,
0: yeah. Were you completely satisfied? How'd that go?
1: You know, with graduate school and a PhD program, you're never completely satisfied But it's because it's such an intense experience. But yeah, no, looking back at it, I was very happy there. And it was really a very formative experience. And even the parts that, you know, I wish would have been different are still very much informing the way that I work. Mm. You know? And I often say that I teach and I do research both from good examples and also bad examples. So that has always been something that I take Mm -hmm. to heart.
0: Do you have a favorite piece of art?
1: Not really. Mm. There are a lot of things that I gravitate toward and keep coming back to. For example, um, I tend to work on the broad spectrum of the Byzantine Empire. So really this very large temporal bracket but I always gravitate toward the 11th century. And if I'm working on Western medieval art, I somehow gravitate toward the 11th century. And so I do have this sort of mid 11th century moment that draws me. And I'm, I mean, I have intellectual reasons why, but I'm not sure how, you know, all my interests sort of congeal upon a certain time period. That doesn't really manifest itself the same in the East
0: and the West. Can you give us an example of, you know, what it is about that period, something that we might know of?
1: Sure. I think probably in the Western world, the key thing that happens in the middle of the 11th century is the Norman Conquest in 1066. So the Normans coming from modern-day France into modern-day England. And so it's a period of a lot of change and a lot of transmission of artistic forms that occur in that period. And the Normans are also entering other spaces across Western Europe that come face-to-face with Byzantium, um, like Norman Sicily. So you have a period that there is these odd moments of contact between the two. In the Byzantine Empire, the mid-11th century also marks a fairly concrete split from what we might refer today as the Catholic Church. So it's really a moment where the two churches are very concretely divided through Theological politics that are so small that might seem silly <laughs> to many of our listeners. It's quite a spectacular moment where they're debating things as much as like whether you put leavening in the Eucharist or not. And that's a major rift between the churches. So it's, it's a period of a lot of change and also a period of a lot of artistic production. That comes with that change. So that means that a lot of the artwork is changing and developing and responding to these political and social changes. So it really is an exciting period with a lot of interesting solutions to problems, which is what draws me.
0: At what point is the Pieta in the Vatican created? And just to refresh our listeners, that is the sculpture of Mary holding Christ in her lap. It's, a, I believe, it's a marble sculpture, and mm-hmm. it's uh, the reason I bring it up. In 1977, I was backpacking. I hadn't even gone to college yet, and that art piece stopped me in my tracks and brought me to tears. I and I wasn't a art teary guy. <laughs> I, I was I wasn't even an art guy. So uh, but please.
1: Yeah. So it's by Michelangelo. So at that point, you were entering what we would traditionally call the Renaissance following the Middle Ages. The divide, like the divide from antiquity to the Middle Ages is also a very fluid one. The Pieta is, of course, a very medieval work of art in its sensibilities and what it's doing. Of course, depicting Mary with the dead Christ on her lap is something that medieval artists were depicting, certainly. And the Pieta is also a fascinating work because it has such an interesting history. Not only did someone try to destroy it in the 20th century, it also was quite famously packed in a box and shipped over to New York City for the 1964 World's Fair, where viewers got to look at it from different conveyor belts moving along in front of it in this sort of blue glowing room, a very disney experience, quite appropriate to the topic of this conversation. And of course, the 64 World's Fair in New York City was also the place where rides like Small World or Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln premiered for the first time and then were translated to Disneyland.
0: If you joined us late, you are listening to UCI Conversations on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is Chancellor's Fellow, Associate Art History Professor Roland Bentoncourt, talking about his expertise in the Roman Byzantine Empire, and also a course he has developed which looks at art history comparisons and Disneyland. Now back to the interview. Since... We're talking about Disneyland. Why don't we just move into that? Professor, how did you come up with this course?
1: So this course began a few years back when I taught a graduate seminar on simulacral spaces. And simulacral just is, let's say, a fancy word for an artificial thing, something that in a sense is a copy without an original. So it really is a term that's used to describe in late 20th century theory, spaces precisely like Disneyland, spaces that are these copies, but that really never have an actual original that they're citing. These spaces that in in a sense replace the actual landscape of the world with this completely artificially constructed reality. And so for me, a lot of my work in this class was thinking about these types of spaces throughout history, from the ancient world to the present, and also pushing back on this idea that they are so artificial, that they are plastic, that they are not real. And that class had a class meeting on Disneyland, that is to say, just three hours of the seminar were dedicated to Disneyland, but we covered other topics like Las Vegas, the Holy Land theme park in Orlando, Florida, for example, and of course medieval churches. And what did pilgrims do when they went to the Holy Land in the Middle Ages? And so we were really looking at this longer history of what we might call tourism, pilgrimage, and the relationships that people have had with sacred special sites.
0: And that was a seminar?
1: That was a graduate seminar for our PhD students, yes.
0: And when you say seminar, is that actually a quarter class or what is that? Yeah,
1: it's a class Mm. much like any other that you would take in college. But a seminar really means that you are, rather than sitting in a lecture hall, you are sitting around a table and discussing. So students are doing readings and there's no lecturing that happens. It really is about students having to lead the conversation, which is why seminars are mainly oriented toward grad students or advanced undergrads that are really able to, you know, carry their own weight in that type of environment.
0: Interesting. So that was your initial expansion and then it expanded from there.
1: Correct. And a lot of faculty who are working on new projects, exploring new ideas, seminars are often where we explore these ideas. You know, we've done a great deal of reading. We are perhaps beginning to write on a topic, we're exploring it further in a more concrete sense. And therefore, seminars are a great way of, you know, having conversations with others, talking with the students, leading them through the material as well. So they really are these sort of laboratories. And so from there, I moved it to an undergraduate seminar, which is the same format, but it really has a lot more lecturing. There's a lot of more handholding involved.
0: So it's now become an undergraduate course seminar. And how long has it been an undergrad?
1: For a year now, and then this spring it will become a lecture course. So following the usual progression that many of our new courses take. And it will be a lower division class, which means that it is really a sort of introductory class. And one of the key things about the class is that it will satisfy an arts and humanities requirement, as well as a science and technology requirement, which says a little bit about the focus and interests of this class.
0: Well, please, let's talk all about the class. I get the impression it's a great general ed course that students can complete that requirement. And there's interest about it. So what is it in the class that you're delving into?
1: Yeah, so the reason why the class is covering not only arts and humanities, but also science and technology, is because it really is a class that is aimed at understanding the technological history that goes behind the Disneyland resort. So, of course, we are in Orange County, and therefore Disneyland is a very critical history of part of the history of Orange County. It's a very local history with a lot of different resources around us. And Disneyland is as much um, a history of innovation and creation on the part of the Imagineers, as it is also a local history of Anaheim, of Orange County, of Southern California, and the various industries that existed here. So while Disneyland is emerging, yes, we can look at the history in which they were innovating and creating all these rides and new ride systems to push what could be done in amusement rides. But we also have the aerospace industry. We have a very long and deep history of the railroad in the West. And these industries are really coming together in Disneyland to produce an experience that is as much dependent on Disney films as it was on what these technologies provided.
0: Is Disneyland the same conceptually today as it was when it first was conceived back in 1954, 53, and it opened in 55?
1: Yeah, this is a great question because, of course, a lot of how people like to talk about Disney is under the rubrics of nostalgia, a nostalgia that says, you know, Main Street looks exactly the same way today as it did when the park first opened. And A lot of the conversations you hear in the park, both on the part of the corporation, the cast members, which are the employees, or even the guests, is, you know, sort of mentality of what would Walt do? Hmm. And of course, the parks have grown beyond Walt Disney's vision. And the thing that I like to often stress is that while Walt Disney might have been involved in the creation of rides like Pirates of the Caribbean... And to a lesser extent, but still very present, the Haunted Mansion, we have to stress the fact that Walt had passed away by the time that these attractions had opened up. So really, these attractions, which at least to me really are the definitive models of what Disneyland offers, really are things that occur beyond um, Walt Disney's lifetime. And so you have a park that is really coming to fruition with Walt Disney's influence, but also with the work of the host of Imagineers and cast members who worked in that park.
0: Do you get into the mind of Disney and how Disneyland was originally conceived?
1: I'm not that interested in the original conception of Disneyland. And one of the key things here is, of course, that A lot of people have discussed this. There's a lot of myths and histories that are associated with the creation. For me, what I find a lot more interesting is everything else that's happening around this conception, because of course, nothing happens in a vacuum. And so for me, a lot of just even doing the research for this class and for my own work has been about, you know, delving through all those origin stories all the narratives that we know, and then, of course, taking about 10 steps back. I always say I always have to take one more step back than I actually think to understand, well, where is this all coming from? It's not just happening out of this isolated genius, but really happening from a very particular cultural moment. And so one of the things that I'll offer up, for example, is, interestingly enough, the year that Disneyland opens... There is a great interest in the European art world on kinetic art. And kinetic art referring particularly to sculptures that moved in some capacity. And this interest really spans through the next almost decade. And then that gets replaced by other art forms as sort of what's in vogue. But it really emerges out of this post-war period of an interest in the animacy of objects and things. And of course, this is the period where Disney is developing the audio animatronics that are so important to what we think of when we think of Disneyland and when we we can even look through the archives of some of these artists and they are actually approached by the Walt Disney Corporation out of interest in what they are doing so it's not even just a sort of broad cultural phenomenon but there are even these very conscious connections that nobody really has thought about before and so that's the type of history that I'm more interested in a history that is really looking at culture and thinking about how is Disneyland significant.
0: So can you look at one particular area in Disneyland and tell us why it is significant?
1: Sure. I think I'll focus on Pirates of the Caribbean. One of the things that I always start off when, you know, I... As someone who teaches on Disneyland, I often get friends who are like, I will be at Disneyland. Please come with me or tell me more about Disneyland. And so one of the things I often say is, you know, where else in our long history have we decided to take multiple warehouses and flood them with water, put a ride vehicle in this space that is going to pretend to be a free-floating boat on a hidden track and go through scenes recreating moments of an alleged history of the Caribbean. You know, this is very unique. This is a very different approach to narrative. This is a very different scale at which these types of spaces occur. The reason why I'm phrasing this so carefully is particularly because I really want to stress the fact that Disneyland is not unique in the sense of you know, theming and these ideas have long, deep histories well into the ancient world, but because the, just the sheer scale of it is so unique. And that's what I find so interesting.
0: You are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is art history professor Roland Bettencourt, talking about his interest in technology and how it influenced the building of Disneyland. Here he looks at Pirates of the Caribbean and The Haunted Mansion. From the time of conception for Pirates of the Caribbean, did that take a long time to develop or were they clear from the start of what they were going to do?
1: Well, interestingly enough, one of the things that we see both applicable to Pirates and to the Haunted Mansion is that these rides emerged really as an idea for walkthroughs. So in a sense, very much modeled on wax museums, which were very popular At the time, and, you know, I've visited my share of wax museums in Orlando and things like that, um, which are these very fascinating vestiges. But, of course, wax museums, any walkthrough has a limit on capacity. People linger at unpredictable speeds. Timing is off. How do you construct a linear narrative when people have freedom? And so, of course, one of the important things that happens here are the lessons precisely of the World's Fair where they develop for the small world a very much revised version of a log flume ride that is very carefully guided on a boat which moves at a particular speed. There are fascinating conversations with Imagineers about the speed at which water moves, which is something beyond our conversation right now, but something that is definitely going to operate in a very predictable way and will allow a large capacity of guests to be loaded in and moved at a pace that you can determine and where you can really guide vision. Of course, this finds its great crescendo with the Haunted Mansion's Omnimover ride system, first used for a now-gone ride, Adventures Through Inner Space, where you not only have this pacing of these chairs, essentially, that are moving you along, but chairs that are actually also on a track that Directs them to certain scenes at certain moments. So, a complete control of vision. I mean, one of the most impressive things being on the Haunted Mansion is the fact that the so called doom buggies really sort of encase your visual frame and they limit how much you can see. And so, they're really directing how you approach the space. You really have to go out of your way to look back or to the side, given the design. So, a very smart way of handling how people look and engage with these three-dimensional spaces.
0: Do you also include California Adventure, the second park at Disneyland?
1: I include California Adventure only as a comparison. I particularly really appreciate California Adventure. I know that that's not a popular idea. I think California Adventure really emerges from a particular moment in postmodernism, which is the perhaps the academic term for describing it. And so in that sense, it is very smart. It is very meta-reflexive on what it's doing and almost reflecting what Disney does with theming and undoing it in very smart ways. One of my favorite moments in all of the Anaheim resort (laughs) is precisely this moment when you get toward the end of one corner of... California Adventure, and you're basically turning into the Hollywood Studios area, and you know you've been walking down this streetscape that is basically Los Angeles, all sort of mixed together. You have the Ennis House or the Hollyhock House with Frank Lloyd Wright, which are bathrooms. Very disappointed when I walked in there and the bathrooms weren't Frank Lloyd Wright themed. Um, <laughs> and then you know you've walked past essentially the Grove and the the farmers market. And you get to the end of that road and you're turning into the studio and in that street corner, you actually are, there's this great reveal that it's all a set. So there's this very articulated sort of infrastructure behind that streetscape, which of course now is the theming because the idea is that you're now in Hollywood studios. So you are on a set, but you have been on a set all along. So it's this very self-aware moment of saying, yes, this is all artificial and that artificiality is part of what we're trying to do here. So in those ways, I think California Adventure is a very smart park. It really acknowledges the limitations of theming. It acknowledges the limitations of Disneyland and in many ways works in much smarter ways than Disneyland itself as a cohesive unit works, which is something that took me a long time to come to terms with. (laughs)
0: Have you been to the new Star Wars land, uh, Galaxy's Edge? Yes, I have been to Star Wars, colon, Galaxy's Edge. (laughs) Um,
1: Yes, and it's a very interesting sort of development in the history of the parks.
0: Do you think it succeeds?
1: Galaxy's Edge is very interesting. My opinions on Galaxy's Edge change every week. I think it is, in many ways, successful. I think it's a very smart park or land in the ways that in which it sets itself within the Star Wars universe. So it operates in a way that is perhaps very familiar to younger audiences and that it works like fan fiction. It really is set within the expanded Star Wars universe. It is perhaps not the moment where you're going to encounter Harrison Ford or it's not the moment where you're going to encounter Darth Vader. But you are going to encounter a planet in the Star Wars universe, and you are about a month out from the events that happened in The Last Jedi, and you are in between the two movies that, you know, the one that will be coming out in December 2019, that really places you in a very particular moment in a cohesive world. And that is something that's very unique because I think many other parks that would try to depict a land like this would not rely on such a sort of almost um, sterile conception of time or there's more of this idea of a storybook realism where you know somehow Darth Vader can exist alongside Kylo Ren even though they don't could never exist side by side and comparing that for example to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter at Universal Studios where you see Dumbledore where you see characters that are no longer living, and the timing of where you are in this universe is sort of, you're in this happy world where everything is happening at once. Where's Voldemort? Where's everything? We don't really know, but all the characters you know and love are there. And so I think both of those models are very successful in very different ways, and Galaxy's Edge takes risks in being placed so precisely in that universe that I think causes, you know, has pros and cons.
0: How about the main... Well, there's New Orleans Square, but the uh, the riverboat and, and that whole uh, river island, um, it used to be Tom Sawyer's Island. Right. I guess it's changed now. Yeah, so. it's
1: called Pirate's Lair, I think. Okay.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what um, What are your perceptions of that?
1: It's a very interesting space. I have to confess, I rarely go over there. In fact... Every time I've gone over there, it's been a very conscious choice of, Roland, you have to go over there. You have to look at it. I know that you you think you don't have to, but, you know, you're here for academic purposes and research. <laughs> like, just go. Oh. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, that's also a very interesting portion of Disneyland because it is one of the moments where New Orleans Square is a moment where they're very much trying to immerse you in a space that is very specific historically in what it was trying to do. There's a healthy contrast with Main Street when you think of Main Street as, you know, the sort of idyllic envisioning of a small town at some point in America, which some people try to place very direct historical ties to Walt Disney's hometown. This has been very much pushed against by scholars who have done research into what this place looked like at that time that Walt was young. So really, it really produces this other vision of this American Main Street, which is very interesting, but it is more of this sort of simulacral space, this copy with no original. Whereas New Orleans Square was really this desire to be very historically specific in the moment in which it was going to exist, and also how it played with things that already existed in the park, like the riverboat. And so a space that is just not only being very much done very carefully historically, but also attempting to play and respond with the things that are already there. How about the castle? The castle? You know, I was thinking about the castle a lot recently. <laughs> Do you have any questions about the castle in particular? Well, any, any thoughts?
0: It, it seems like it succeeds. It's just a wonderful center point that all lands seem to lead to. Yeah.
1: And that's very much dependent on the sort of hub design, Mm -hmm. the sort of houseman design of a city like Paris, creation of these central avenues that lead to, you know, Washington, D.C. is a great example where we have this type of architecture, which is very good for wayfinding. The castle, you know, it's funny because... As a Floridian, the castle always seems too small, which I know is like the most, (laughs) um, which is such, I actually love that because it says so much about expectations and ideas of scale in the mid 20th century. And another thing that's important about the castle is that it's not unique in what it's doing. The castle, of course, if you've ever driven through Los Angeles, through places like Hancock Park, Larchmont if you've driven through Los Feliz, you've seen many apartment buildings from the early to mid 20th century that, of course, are in these sort of chateau styles, drawing on these very precisely late medieval castles. And also, more importantly, depictions of late medieval castles, which we have some great examples of from manuscripts with very elaborate, lush illustrations of these types of fortifications. And what's very interesting, of course, that I particularly enjoy is that the castle that Sleeping Beauty Castle is based off of is the, as the sources go, especially in the official documentation that Disney always cites, is of course Neuschwanstein Castle, which recently I saw cited somewhere as Swanstone Castle, which is partially right, but the real translation of the German is New Swanstone Castle, because of course it is an actual reconstruction itself, reimagining rather, of a medieval castle architecture. And so what I love about that is that of course Disney's castle in this lineage is a copy of a copy. It is not even, you know, citing a actual medieval building, but rather a building that was neo-medieval in its design, which is really a lovely moment here of looking at the deep history of these forms of citation, of placing oneself in an august lineage of rulership and power, which very much here occurs in this storybook fantasy world.
0: So from the experience of somebody just going to Disneyland and walking through, do you find that Disneyland is highly successful? It sure, I mean, it seems like the proof is in the pudding. Millions (laughs) of people go a year...
1: Of course it's successful. Uh. I think one of the important things to keep in mind about the success of Disneyland is that Disneyland is as much a success because of what it does and what it did as much as it is a success of where the cultural interest is at the time. And the reason why I say that is because if you look at a place like Las Vegas there's a very interesting history there of theme spaces. Las Vegas is a great place to explore theming because it is a place that has very discrete spaces, aka hotels. And hotels get built in a certain date, and there's a very clear history that in many ways you can palpably experience in a way that at Disney, it can get very muddled. Like, when was this changed? When was this added? That's much more difficult. And if you actually, you know, have just a list of dates and walk down the strip, you really begin to understand that there's a great deal of interest in theming in the late 80s and 90s, where you have the development of places like the Luxor, like the Excalibur. Earlier, you know, you had a great interest in theming in the 60s, where you got Caesar's Palace, yes, but also the Getty Villa. And so thinking about places, and of course the Getty Villa in Malibu is what I'm referring to, which is this museum today, but really created as a reconstruction of a Roman villa, happening almost at the same time as the creation of Caesar's Palace in Vegas. And so you really then begin to look at the history of Las Vegas, and as the 90s progress and we enter the early 2000s, then we have a completely different design of hotels. We have hotels that are focused on a theming that is about opulence. I think the Bellagio is a great transition between these two phases where you go from vague Italian theming into just depictions of wealth, which then I think culminate greatly in something like the Mandalay Bay, the Delano, even the Trump Hotel, which is really about shiny gold glass, really about these depictions of opulence rather than the theming that you would find at the Luxor that now maybe looks kitschy in comparison to these. And so I'm going on this tangent because I think the history of Disneyland is so important to think in the context of these interests, which Vegas really brings to the forefront, which is that there are moments where we are very interested in theme spaces and moments where we want these sort of spaces that unsettle us, take us to a certain time period or place Whereas that comes and goes, and I think Disney becomes most powerful, the parks themselves, in these moments where we're so interested in theme spaces. And this says a lot about how we are relating to history at any given time. And that history of our relations to history really say a lot about where we are um, as a culture, thinking about nostalgia, thinking about the past, thinking about the future as well. And so Disney's success is something that I think the theme parks are a very interesting part because they sometimes are popular and sometimes are less popular. And a lot of that needs to also be culturally contextualized.
0: You are listening to KUCI's UCI Conversations with Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is art professor Roland Bettencourt. Here he continues talking about art, architecture, and his course on Disneyland. So, What do you think that students take away from the course? Do you have a sense of that?
1: Yeah. So the course really, the key thing for me with this class is to think about, you know, traditionally art and architecture and think about not only design process, but one of the key things in a class is also an introductory one is to develop a form of visual literacy with students, which means that. If you're going to have a conversation about this is citing this, you know, the castle is citing this castle, or um, pirates is citing this type of architecture, students need that literacy in some capacity. They need to be able to understand the references, but they also need to be able to look carefully and understand that a photograph is staged, that a th- film is staged, but when you architect something, when you paint something, when you sculpt something, Every detail also needs to be staged and placed there. And so understanding the basics of art history and looking and understanding that nothing is accidental, especially in a place like Disney where they've been very careful and there are swatches of every fabric, there are details of every detail, those things matter highly. And so to really get students to think visually, to learn how to look and talk about the visual world is very important. I remember after I took AP Art History, all I could see was see different types of columns. I was like Doric, Ionic, and Corinthian. It was almost overwhelming to walk around just the street or even I remember watching something like Gilmore Girls on TV and being like, oh, that's an Ionic, that's a Doric column, constantly overwhelmed by that visual literacy. And that's one of the things I think is also very important in this class, doing that type of work with students. The other side of that is the science and technology side. So students will be reading patterns, um, getting to know more about how rides operate because I'm a firm believer that in an environment like Disneyland, how a ride operates is just as important as the art and architecture because that art and architecture was designed to work with that ride system and that ride system was, worked to design, to, was designed to work with that architecture. And so you can't really divorce the two if you don't understand the details of how a boat moves through Pirates of the Caribbean. You can't really understand why certain scenes are staged the way they are, where the reveals happen, how sight lines are broken so you don't see the next scene. All of this depends on how fast is the boat going to take a curve? How fast is the boat going to move through another portion of the track? So... What I really want to do is really bring these two spaces together because they really are so critical to how this visual literacy that I was talking about works in a place like this, which as a medievalist, my equivalent of looking at this is thinking that if there is a painting in a church, well, what did people do with that painting? Did they light candles? Where did it it stand while the mass was going on, while liturgy was happening? Was there incense? If incense was there, how... Did it change the way that light traveled through the space? At what times did these rituals occur? What was the lighting? What were the smells? What were all these experiences that really contoured the way that we look at the work of art? Mm -hmm. So I'm very much thinking about Disneyland as a medievalist, as someone trained to look at the Middle Ages, because those are the types of holistic questions that we ask, rather than just saying, here's a painting against a white wall in a museum space that is just purely meant to be understood for brush stroke and color and line. It really is. You can ask those questions, but you also have to ask how do those colors and line look when it's, you know, dark and you're only looking at it through candlelight?
0: Do you do a field trip as a class to Disneyland?
1: In the past, I've basically done optional field trips, essentially just because I can't commands students to go to Disneyland. And with all field trips, you know, schedules are difficult and Disneyland is very expensive. So a combination of the two. And so what I found often is that students are very enthusiastic to tell their parents that they have to go to Disneyland, which, no parents, if you're listening to this, I didn't tell them they have to go to Disneyland. (laughs) All assignments can be done without a visit to Disneyland. But I do encourage the assignments are actually targeted for students to actually have contact with real themed spaces. So one of the options that I give students is they have to write a paper when they, where they look at ride operations and also how people engage with themed environments. So the thing that I offer to them is go to the Irvine Spectrum Center, because there you have this wonderful themed space on the Alhambra with all these details of Nazareth Islamic architecture. And you also have a Ferris wheel and a carousel. So it's a great place to look at theming, look at how people engage with it or don't, look at how ride operations work. So that's always the option that I give them to go to other types of spaces like that.
0: Do you look at the opposite of a successful themed area mm-hmm. to like, here's a theme area that was built and it was a complete failure?
1: to a certain extent. <laughs> I, I have to say I have been, all my friends are always like, you need to go to like a carnival like happening in a parking lot somewhere. I'm like, "Okay, that's not that's more of an amusement park than a theme park." But I have been thinking also about, you know, what are other approaches to theming? I I mean, I appreciate what theming does in its own right everywhere. And so, you know, there are some great places. I mean, I guess I could compile a list of just even in Orange County, great weird interesting themed places. Can you name one or two? Yeah. I recently went to the this restaurant called the Orange County Mining Company. <laughs> and it is basically, it's on a hilltop. Have you ever been? I have. Yeah.
0: It's in Orange, the city. Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, just a fascinating moment of like, you know, this other era, which Disney is very much a part of and has influenced that as well. Mm. Just, you know, you pull up and park and there's like mining noises going on in the background. And, you know, it's just like, what is happening? And you enter this, you know, west... Gold panning, you know, salad bar situation that is a time warp in its own right but, you know, fits into this broader history of all these different types of themed restaurants that existed in a certain period. That for me, I love spaces like that because it really demonstrates the just the broader cultural manifestation of these things that I love about Disneyland and find so fascinating, which are of course such a crucial part of Southern California. From, you know, motels to restaurants, you know, Disney didn't invent the tiki room. This comes from tiki culture in the post-war period. It also comes from the pre-war periods, like places like Clifton's cafeteria in Los Angeles. So it's a very fascinating world of theming that I really appreciate on its own right. So I can't say that there are any bad theme spaces, they're just fascinating ones. <laughs>
0: And since we're on the subject of mining in the West, Knott's Berry Farm must be a rich space for you.
1: I just went to Knott's Berry Farm for the first time oh, uh, a few okay. weeks ago. And yeah, it was fascinating. Knott's Berry is really interesting because, of course, you had the, the very like amusement park area, which is, here are our thrill roller coasters. The theming is non-existent unless there's sort of a snoopy ip like <laughs> that you can put on it and so it's it's very much what you would expect from an amusement park but then you enter the sort of the ghost town area i think they call it and of course the flume ride and the mine train ride which i absolutely found fascinating which are really interesting. They have a, a fascinating history of their own with several you know, refurbishments and alterations over time. And one of the key things about the flume ride is that it actually, of course, predates Splash Mountain by many years. And it was done by Arrow Development, which is the same manufacturer that was doing all of Disney's rides. And the ride system that Pirates uses emerges from the ride system that they developed for an earlier iteration of the Flume Ride. So, when you it, say
0: Flume Ride, is that the log ride? The or? log ride, yeah, oh, okay.
1: the the log ride. Um, and so, this the, there's a wonderful moment of you know Disneyland history there that is so critical, so important, and. It's very refreshing to see it in other spaces and to understand the the broader impact that this has had. And, you know, it's it, one of the most fascinating things there is that, of course, you also have these sites that are historic landmarks. There's this, again, blurring of what is theming, what is an actual historical site with all these plaques in the sort of ghost town area like this is a historic site um, so a really interesting way in which theming is now, you know, it, is, it, is, this a, is this theming? Is it original? Is it not? What happens when you put that in a theme park? So, you know, I, I had my boyfriend say that he actually used to be taken there for um, high school field trips uh, for, in history class. And I was like, whoa, okay, <laughs> that's a, that's a new layer that's like <laughs> going to learn about. The American West at a theme park is fascinating.
0: (laughs) What else, Professor, do you have on the horizon? Are you working on a book?
1: Yeah, so the Disneyland research is really aimed for a book project. And that book project, I think, in many ways, echoes a lot of the interest that I've shared here. I'm very interested in looking, of course, at the technical side of things and a very local history and one of the things that I really am interested in showcasing is also the importance that the employees in the park have um the cast members who are of course um the people who most interact with um and who really make the imagineer's dreams a reality um by really operating the rides and so for me I'm very interested in a history that really gives light and puts importance on those who actually are like operating the rides and who you know change how rides operate through experience and who are there in the parks because I think that's also a very interesting part of of what I like to think about which is really how do people on the ground make realities for works of art how do they change them you know if whether you're carrying uh medieval icon of Christ through a church, you know, who's that person and how do their actions actually determine how the experience of the work of art is going to be Hmm. felt. So that's also one of my goals to really showcase that very local history and also personal side to this.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Professor, is there an area in Disneyland that you feel is unsuccessful that, you know, it's like, well, they were trying to achieve this and it really has never made sense (laughs)
1: <laughs> no. I would say that there are there are areas that I would certainly do differently. But on the other hand, I think that probably in terms of just a very stereotypical thing that people find unsuccessful, I think a good example to use is currently Tomorrowland, where, of course, you know, what is Tomorrowland right now? Because, of course, it's no longer a vision of Tomorrow. Particularly, it's a space that has had different growth in different directions. So, you know, right now you have, like, hyperspace mountain themed alongside Star Wars, but then you have Star Wars Land, you also have Star Tours, then you have Buzz Lightyear, so you have Toy Story, which now exists in Pixar Pier in California Adventure, and then, of course, like, this isn't really about tomorrow, and so there have been a lot of great, um, almost very nerdy conversations about how to make Tomorrowland a space that is, in a sense, more historical, um, a sort of retro Tomorrowland that goes back to a sort of feeling of the 1964 World's Fair, this real idea of like doing a sort of more mid-century project for Tomorrowland, which perhaps will be a direction that will be taken in the future. So I think Tomorrowland's a very, in, in terms of just Hearing what Disney fans think is sort of a failure, I think that's definitely one of those spaces at the moment. And I think that's a very interesting lesson in a sense because it definitely shows that theming breaks down when theming doesn't understand what's across the street, which is to say, you know, you have to understand that you can make changes and things should change and evolve, but you also need to understand that they should respond. You know, New Orleans Square needs to be aware that the riverboat's going to be crossing in front of it, you know. And the riverboat needs to be aware that there will be a new land that will be constructed across from it. So how will it fit into that? You know, how transitions are handled throughout the park are very important. And so I think that's definitely a moment where we see that there's an issue with these same spaces when they begin to not be as smart to how they respond. Mm. And the question is not, you know, preserve completely and don't change anything. The question really is about response, thinking that, Art has dialogue. It dialogues with one another. Artists dialogue with one another. They respond to each other's works. They try to outdo itself, outdo each other. And I think that's also something that I, I'm hopeful that there's more of, you know, how do also different theme parks as they change and each take on their different identities, not how do you compete, but rather how do you outdo one another. And so I think that's a very healthy relationship to have. Of thinking, you know, what does Universal offer that Disney doesn't? And what's interesting? What's unique about what Universal is doing? And how does Disney respond and outdo? So I think that's definitely something that we'll also be seeing a lot in the new Star Wars land ride, Rise of the Resistance, when it opens finally at Disneyland, even though it just opened at Hollywood Studios in Orlando.
0: Excellent. Well, we've we've come to the end of our time, Professor. Thank you very much for being with us and offering us all these insights into this local, iconic destination.
1: My pleasure.